Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here at Generations Church. And we know that as we begin gathering here this morning, uh, jumping back into our benefits package series, um, that you may have missed a few things, so I'm going to catch you up to speed. Uh, we concluded at least the first part of this series before we jumped into our Advent series, but I just want you to know that um, you're stepping into a beautiful story that God is weaving together here at Generations, and we hope to get to know you and your story. So that's why I know John mentioned, hey, you know, fill out a gen card, you know, download the app, because we really want to highlight those opportunities to get to know each other, both, yes, on Sunday morning, but those opportunities outside where we get to talk about life, faith, and just how to navigate things well. Speaking of, like, stories and getting to know each other well, um, how many of you in here or online, let us know in the comments, are keepsake people. Like, you have, like, these keepsakes. Okay, I didn't say pack rats, but keepsake. Okay, I got a few keepsake, that, you know, because there's that difference between, you know, keepsake and then, you know, okay. Um, or, or how many of you people are, like, like purgers? You're like, I don't keep nothing. I get rid of everything. Uh, and it's like, you know, some of those elbow nudges. I, I, I saw some of those of, like, okay, it's time to get rid of that. Uh, you know, it's some of those... Uh, moments, uh, I, you know, that's not to start any fights, I guess, this morning of the different types of people we have around here. You know, some people are the keepsake, some people are the, the over the keepsake, you know, the, the, that hoarder moment. And uh, then we got the people who are like always getting rid of stuff. So just be careful who you look at when, as you hear me say that. I know some of you, um, you know, it's like, when we hold on to different things, you think about like, are you, are you really going to need that? Are you really going to hold on to that? And it's like, I'm a just-in-case person, full transparency. Let's hold on to it just in case. Um, so go a little bit more than the keepsake because, you know, some, my, some people are like, well, you'll never use it. And you're like, but yeah, just in case. And then, you know, when you get have a conversation with a purger person, it's like, man, like, do you even have a heart? Is there nothing that's, like, sentimental to you? I, I like, come on, like, can we keep something? Uh, and so it's just, it's just always funny to, to know, like, how we interact with not just things, but, like, potentially, like, sentimental things, like the types of things we hold on to for whatever reason. And, and maybe it's we, we actually get rid of stuff because we hold on to a deeper value of, of something else, and that's our justification. And so it's like you have this minimalistic lifestyle, so it's like I'm holding on to that, which is why I'm getting rid of everything. The reality is, in many ways, the audience of Hebrew to this letter to the Hebrews they're evaluating their lives, and they're trying to figure out what are the types of things we should hold on to, and what are the types of things we should get rid of. What is something that we should, we should orient our lives around and say, this matters, I'm going to hold on to this, and then what are the types of things that say, it's really not much value here, we should go. And the two types of things that they have in contrast are this, really this conflict, is this old way of living, this old religious system versus 
clinging on to Jesus, who they've now given their lives to. And they're trying to decipher and determine, is it worth it to hang on to Jesus? Because they're discouraged. They're going through a level of suffering. They're considering even throwing in the towel and and wondering, yeah, is following Jesus really worth it? And so this author, this pastor, writes back to the Hebrews with basically this plea that says, hey, Jesus is better. Hold on to Jesus and don't give up. No matter how life is going, no matter the better options in front of you, what you think you should let go and give up, how to navigate all that, Jesus is better. Don't give up. And so as we transition back into this teaching series, this benefits package, looking at how Jesus is better, better, the benefits available to us, it's very fitting that we look at a passage that's really this transition as we transition in the year between this first major section of Hebrews and the second major section. So catch up, kind of that previously on, As I said, the Christians were thinking about throwing in the towel and calling it quits. And what this author has done is begin to build a robust list of how Jesus is better than the options that they are considering. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the old religious system. Uh, He's he's the the first apostle. He's the high priest. More on that as we get into this. And really to say that because Jesus is better, that that it's better for them to hang on to Jesus than go back into their old life. And then really to invite them on a continual journey where they're anchored to who Jesus is and what he has done rather than go back to a previous way of thinking and living. But the challenge is, is as they've gone on this journey so far, It's not quite panned out how they thought it would go. This journey that we are also invited on isn't just one of health, wealth, and happiness, but ultimately one of transformation, meaning new character, new priorities, and new affections. And so whether you're a Christian or not this morning, it's incredibly powerful to hear why these Christians shouldn't throw in that towel. At the end of the day, if you have to compare and contrast a level of worldviews, a level of options, of of characters and priorities and affections, at this moment in this transition section, why Jesus is better. And so the author has really two exhortations, two encouragements to please for these weary Christians that is ultimately rooted in, and Jesus' empathy for them. See, Jesus' empathy is helpful when you're suffering. To understand that the God of the universe stepped down into flesh and lived a life, and before he went back to the Father, gave up his life for us. So, So the God of the Bible, Jesus in particular, knows what it means to suffer to go through grief, to experience joy, hunger, and thirst. And so Jesus' empathy for you is helpful when you are suffering, but Jesus' empathy for you is a help 
also when you're on the fringes of your faith. When you're not quite sure what to believe, why you should believe it. Because see, sometimes apostasy happens when a person is distanced from the care that Jesus has for them. Sometimes we trend towards unbelief, running away from a faith that can save us and sustain us, from a Savior that can save us and sustain us, not because we intellectually don't believe certain things, but because we've neglected to absorb and receive the care that's available to us in Jesus. See, faith is theological, faith is biblical, faith is intellectual, but it's also social, relational, and emotional. And Jesus wants to meet us precisely where we're at in our story in all of those phases and places. See, the good news of Jesus isn't just to take care of your soul so that you can be with God when you die, but it's also to make you whole while you lived. And that is the hope. That is why in the midst of suffering and difficulty, you can have a measure of joy. You can have an assurance. You, you can move forward, not because you're better or smarter or you've got more life skills, so to speak, than someone else, but because it's Jesus that is sustaining and that sounds foreign and difficult and even oftentimes kind of puzzling at times unless you've begun to step in, lean in, and experience it. Which is why the author of this Hebrew passage to these weary and worn out Christians it says, his first exhortation is, let us hold firmly to the confession of the faith we profess. He says, the basis for this exhortation is since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, the Jesus Son of God. When it's saying gone through the heavens, this is speaking of Jesus' return to the Father. So Asher has lived, died, and been resurrected at his return, going back to the heavens. And as Jesus returned to the Father, he is a great high priest. The author is putting Jesus in contrast to the faith system that these believers were considering going back to. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. They were looking for assurance. They were asking questions. How will we know? How can we know? And this author claims that Jesus is better than a tactile, tangible system where sacrifice is offered and faith is mediated by a literal priest on the ground in the tabernacle and then temple. And I think sometimes that's, that's difficult for us because we don't have that tactile priest physically that we see or a temple or a sacrificial system in the same way the Jewish people did. And so for us to, to, to kind of step into this, we need to realize that God appointed a person. He appointed people to represent him to the people and then represent the people back to him called this high priest. And we're going to get more into this in coming weeks. But just for, for clarity, one day a year, this high priest would encounter God by offering sacrifices for himself and for the people. And such a weighty encounter that they would actually attach a rope to this high priest so that as he would go through the sections 
of this temple. So there was this outer court, there was this middle court, and then there's this inner court, this holy of holies, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. So if you ever watch Indiana Jones, one of those movies, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy, that, that thing, that sat in the middle of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. And so this high priest would go in there to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And again, on the top of this, there's no physical image because that's where God dwelled, and God said, don't make for myself a graven image. And so, so he's going into this holy of holies, a place. And it was such a way to experience that and God's purifying goodness and love that if the priest was unclean when he entered into this moment, he would drop dead. So they attached a rope and a bell to him so that when he went in, that if they heard the bell stop jingling, they know time to pull the rope, pull, pull him pull them out and it's a weighty experience and what and sometimes it's like man the judgment the harshness the the holiness of god and what you understand is god is 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 totally love he's like a consuming fire it's a purifying fire so that anything that stands in contrast to that love gets consumed the sheer presence of a total loving goodness consumes And what the high priest would do is offer this sacrifice for himself and then also to cover the sin of the people. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, he is both the high priest and the perfect sacrifice. He can walk right into the heavenly throne room and not be struck dead. Charles made a comment a little bit ago, like, I wonder what Roy experiences. What, it, it, think of the, heaven, the, the, the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to be an exact replica of the heavenly realm. So when Jesus ascended back to the Father, he strolls and past the outer gates. And, and, and there, there are people and, and, and angels giving glory, honor, and praise to the one true and living God. And then there's the next and the next. And, and Jesus doesn't just stop on that outer. He goes right up to the throne. Because he is the mediator, he's, he's the high priest and the sacrifice. So he sits there on the throne. Amen. And what happens is every day we exchange. We choose. And we say, it's either God who sits on the throne and trusts that Jesus is there mediating for us, that there would have been an advocate on our behalf. Do you really, like, let me just pause, like, when Jesus walks in as the high priest, he's not there for himself. He's there for you. He's saying, I have done this so that this person can come into the presence of God, can come in and be known and loved and just sing and say and respond and be known by God. Jesus is the one who ushers that in. Because if we try to go in, we'd be the one that I need pulled out. Because every day we settle for lesser things on the throne of our lives in our hearts. The conflicting systems of worship we build in our own hearts and world want us to loosen our grip on the reality that Jesus is advocating for us. See, the Bible is full of confessional statements and documents, snippets of hymns and creedal confessions to stabilize us on that reality. 
because we have all kinds of other phrases and sayings that try to get us to loosen our grip on that truth. And so these things are stabilizing for us because they provide clarity for us on what to believe. And, and this author, he, he almost he gives them another piece, a glimpse of that reality. And I want you to have an anchor on what you believe, not just, I feel like the Lord is good to me. Because sometimes we, we don't feel like God is good, but that doesn't make him any less good. You can't just feel like God is good. You have to know some stuff because your feelings will lie to you. I think this is why baptism is so important, if I might draw this connection. It's a confession of faith with your body that you're wrapped in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That it's he that cleanses you from sin. It's his life his, and his advocacy that is sufficient for you, which means you don't have to advocate on your own behalf. Yeah. You know, some of you live every day of your life making a list of why you think that, or live a, lot, a way that says, okay, God, I've done this good today. Please accept this. Mm. That sacrifice, that statement is woefully inadequate. We can never do enough good to earn us a spot in heaven. Now, the inverse is true. It means that we, if we are wrapped up in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we also can't do enough bad that God says you're not worthy, that you're worthless. He said, no, because of Jesus, I died and I gave up for you. You are loved. And you have access as this passage says, to come to the throne with great boldness, with great courage. I think some of us struggle with the assurance of faith at times. We wonder, am I really saved? Because often, so much of our life, we leave it up to lip service or feelings. And not, it's, it's, not, it's not a total body surrender, which is why the confession at baptism, that physical act, is so helpful to remind us. It is not the old that trumps the new, but the new because of Jesus that trumps the old. Amen. This is what's so good about this passage, because some of you have been baptized, feel the weight of not living right, and you wonder if the same confession which saved you will sustain you. And the reality is, is yes, you are both saved and sustained Amen. by Jesus. For it is he, the high priest, who both intercedes for us and sacrifices life for us. See, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we, just without sin. And you may be wondering, well, if Jesus is God and fully human, fully man, was Jesus really tempted in every way we are? I don't know about you, but that's me. Like when I like interact with the Bible, it's like I have this ongoing conversation where I ask questions and have to seek for an answer. And, and the reality is we live in a modern world full of modern tools of sin. There are sins related to weapons or, or that did not exist in the ancient world. And although the expressions or tools of sin have changed in the past two millennia, 
Sin's essential nature remains immutable. Hatred, murder, greed, dishonesty, lust, seeking for comfort and control and things that are lesser. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Trusting in tactile systems rather than trusting in the Savior. And Jesus responded to all of those very real temptations with a no and with a yes. A no to sin and a yes to his Father. It's a response. This is why, like, when we gather here collectively, we use that terminology purposely to respond to God. We've got to build those muscles to, to practice saying, I'm going to say no to sin. When something very real comes at me, and I know it'll wreak not just havoc in my life, but in my heart. Maybe there's external consequences, and it's not just the external consequence. We know what it does to our mental and we got to be able to say no to that because I'm selling for something lesser on the throne that cannot sustain me, cannot save me. And i got to say yes to something. that Well, it's a response. And sometimes we wonder, well, Jesus, you know, can, can Jesus really know what it's like to be fully human if he didn't sin? Because we all sin, we all exchange that, we've all done that. Well, isn't that what it means to be human the answer is no. We settle for being fallen human rather than fully human. And what's amazing is, is Charles Spurgeon, a, a, a famous preacher, said it like this. He says, but listen to me. Do not imagine that if the Lord Jesus had sinned, he would have been any more tender toward you. For sin is always a hardening nature. For if the Christ of God could have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. See, Jesus can perfectly feel sympathy, perfectly feel empathy towards you because he's never been hardened by sin. Which is why when his all-consuming love and grace can be extended to you because it's the purest of forms. And because of that reality, we can then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Immediately prior to today's teaching passage, the end of, in, in verse 12 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. See, we will give an account. We will hold up a list, and either the list is of what our own doing is or of what Jesus did. And the temptation is as the word of God pierces our souls, it exposes us. Our thoughts cannot be hidden. Our internal motives, I, some of you are really good at, at, at justifying why you do what you do. We've got all the reasoning, all the psychology, all the statistics, all the convincing. Because at the end of the day, when we get exposed, the temptation is to shrink back, to justify. But here's what's amazing 
is as the word exposes, as God sees us rightly, because of Jesus, we don't have to shrink back. There is no fear. We can go forward towards the throne when we're in need, when we are joyful, when we feel alone, when you've done something you're proud of, when you've done something you're not proud of. God calls us out of that unlikeness and moves us to an increasing relinquishment of that unlikeness. He says, turn it over to me, come towards me, allow me to change and transform you. This leads to a new structure of being and doing and eventually culminates in Christ-likeness of spirit and behavior at that particular point of our life. It's increasing every aspect of our life, turning that over to him. As we become exposed to say, don't shrink back, but move towards, surrender. And see, boldly coming before the throne does not mean proudly, arrogantly, or with presumption. Boldly means we may come constantly. Boldly means we may come without reservation. Boldly means we can come freely without fancy words. Boldly means we can come with confidence. Boldly means we can come with persistence to a throne, to a throne of grace. See, the throne of God is a throne of grace, and when we come, we may obtain mercy. This is not getting what we deserve and find grace. This is getting what we don't deserve in our time of need. And sometimes that's really difficult to reconcile. In fact, this has been an age-old problem. See, ancient Jewish rabbis taught that God had two thrones, one of mercy and one of judgment. They said this because they knew that God was both merciful and just, but they could not reconcile these two attributes of God. They thought that perhaps God had two thrones to display the two aspects of his character. On one throne he showed judgment, and the other throne mercy. But here, in light of the finished work of Jesus, we see mercy and judgment reconciled into one throne of grace. See, there is only one throne, and that is where Jesus advocates for us, on behalf of us. And sometimes we live life when something is going well, we almost wait as if the second shoe is going to drop. Something's going good. I've done something right. I've, man, life is going well. And it's like, okay, when's that other shoe going to drop? And some, t- some of you feel like uh, all you're doing is living life under that dropped shoe. You're like, can I, can I, can I, get, can I, can I get some let up, please? And what's amazing is when we hold fast the confession and we also move towards the throne of grace, we have no fear of if the second shoe ever drops because the second shoe dropping is never going to be enough to crush us. And no matter the pressure of that second shoe, if we feel like it's down on us, it won't ever crush because we have a Savior who took the crushing ultimately for us and gave us a way out because we measure not our life by our circumstances, but by the presence of Jesus advocating for us. 
to the Father. See, grace does not ignore God's justice. It operates in fulfillment of God's justice in light of the cross so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What is our need? Our need is to understand who we are in light of a creator, God, who wants to hang out with us. God wants to hang out with you. He wants to spend time with you. His intention is not to crush you or overwhelm you. He wants to be with you and help you navigate life. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. There are five lies of identity that we believe that I am what I have, that I am what I do, I am what other people say or think of me, that I am nothing more than my worst moment, and I'm nothing less than my best moment. Sin at the end of the day is settling and agreeing with those lies. It's living like they are the most true story. And those lies are crushing. But we can be rescued from those crushing lies with a powerful truth. That you are not what you have, that you are not solely what you do, that you are not what other people say or think of you. You're, you are more than your worst moment and you are not less than your best moment. That because of Jesus, you can be cleansed from all sin and experience newness of life. That is the true story. And when we hold fast to this confession and approach the throne with boldness, it's a direct assault on those lies. We start to live a truth that is more powerful than those lies. And the ways that we hold on to this confession and approach the throne with boldness is we've got to help our hearts understand and, and, and remove those lies from our mind and from our heart. So, so some of the ways that we do that around here is we try to sing the true story of Scripture. Amen. The sacrificial system was an act of worship. Now, worship is more than singing, but singing helps us live and sear into our hearts and minds the true story of Scripture. Songs have a way of getting stuck in our heads. Yeah. And we need music to help us align with the story of Scripture. That God says, I love you. That I am with you. To not be afraid. And that you can come home. We sing songs that try to re-emphasize that of God's love for us. And that he is with us. We can also confront the lies we've believed or still believe about ourselves and about God. Writer Annie Dillard tells of a cold Christmas Eve when she, then a younger girl and her family, had come home from a late dinner out. Ginger Ale and a plate of cookies sat on a special table. Dillard had taken off her winter coat and was warming herself by the heat register. Suddenly the front door opened and a person entered whom Dillard never wanted to meet. Santa Claus. The family called to her, look who's here, look who's here. Little Annie ran upstairs. She explains that she feared Santa Claus as an old man whom you never saw, but who nevertheless saw you. 
He knew when you'd been bad and when you'd be good, and she said, I had been bad, and so I was afraid. Santa stood in the doorway ringing the bell and shouting, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and Annie never came down. Dillard found out later that this Santa was really a rigged-up Miss White, the old lady who lived across the street. Miss White constantly reached out to young Annie, giving her cookies, teaching her finger painting, and gently instructing her about the things of the world. Annie liked Miss White, but one day, six months after the Santa incident, she ran from Miss White again. The lesson of the day involved a magnifying glass. The old lady focused a pinpoint of sunlight on Dillard's palm to let her feel the heat. The little girl was accidentally burned, and she ripped away her hand and dashed home crying. Miss White called after her, trying to explain, but to no avail. Reflecting on how these experiences paralleled her relationship with God, Dillard writes, Even now I wonder, if I meet God, will he take and hold my bare hand in his, and focus his eye on my palm, and kindle that spot and let me burn? But no, it is I who misunderstood everything and let everybody down. Miss White, God, I am sorry I ran from you, for I am still running, running from that knowledge, that I, that love which there is no refuge. For you meant only love and love, and I felt only fear and pain. So once in Israel, love came to us incarnate and stood in the doorway between two worlds, and we were all afraid. Like Dillard's Miss White, God calls out after us, trying to explain. He invites us out of our want into his supply of love, out of our spiritual cold into the warmth of his holy fire, out of our fear into trust and love. Yet we, like half-starred, rain-soaked strays, run from our source of true help. We fear the throne as a throne of judgment but doubt it as a throne of grace. See, at the end of the day, it's not natural to draw near to God. It truly is supernatural. And he has called us to himself away from the natural pulls and thoughts of this world. His invitation and promises still stand. And our part is to respond to his call and approach the throne to see and experience his sympathy. His sympathy, our sympathetic high priest, has experienced the temptation to bolt and run. He has been with us in our humanness and invites us to be with him at the throne of grace. And therefore, we may approach with unabashed boldness. Let us make that approach today, for we will surely find timely help for whatever we need. And may we also, and maybe thirdly, lastly, grow in emotional health so that we practice empathy tangibly. For some of you, the hardness of life and the hardness of this world has begun to harden your mind and heart towards others. It's easier to, to want to just simply get away, to go be with Jesus and get out of here. 
and that temptation and pull was real, but the reality is, is our heavenly calling is to be like Christ, to be little advocates every single day with our lives, Amen. to trust that his sacrifice and his saving is sufficient for us Amen. so that we don't have to try to earn our salvation or, or run or, or get away, but truly live out of that reality right now. To show and share a way that we trust in something eternal and greater than what can just satisfy us for the next moment. And this may look like getting clinical counseling to deal with some unresolved trauma. It may begin to read books like Emotionally Healthy Spirituality or An Invitation to a Journey. It may mean journaling as you read through scripture to get the thoughts out of your head so that every conversation with others isn't a projection of what's going on up here. But it means dealing with the reality and the difficulty of life with Jesus. And allow his love and his empathy to strengthen us, to sustain us, to believe and hold fast to that confession that he is on our side when we are found in him. So as the band comes forward, and as we're gonna sing a final song, to shout, to to praise, to, to sing, may you let that the story of scripture strengthen you today. May you not fear the other foot dropping May may you trust in the sufficient promises of Christ that he was tested in every way yet was without sin so that he could intercede for us. That he ushers us into the throne room of grace. That those in Christ have an incredible benefit that the mediator between us and God is sympathetic towards us. This enables us to approach God and experience grace. May we believe that and live that each and every day. And as we journey together through this benefits package series, through the rest of the book of Hebrews, may we believe the resolve, may we believe the refrain, may we live as if the story of Scripture, as if the story of Jesus truly overcomes our sin. And show that to the world that we find ourselves in. Let's sing, let us stand, and let us respond together.